As we get going, I wonder if any of you have seen No Time to Die, the latest John, James Bond film. Anyone, anyone seen it? Put up a hand. No spoilers, but I think it's very good, and I recommend it. I think it's well worth watching. But actually, when it comes to fictional spies, I think my favourite is actually John le Carre's novels. A very grown-up, sophisticated choice, if I say so myself. But I really love them because they're full of tension, and of course, he actually knows what he's talking about. I think he was involved in espionage in the Cold War. And there's an unforgettable scene in one of his novels in which one character is trying to get across from East Berlin to West Berlin over the Berlin Wall. A spy and a defector are trying to get to safety because they're on the wrong side. And there's so much tension as the plot builds. I won't tell you which one, so it's not spoiled for you. And you wonder, are they going to make it across? Will they safely arrive in the West? Or will they be shot in the back as they try to escape? It's powerful stuff, especially when you realize there was a lot of that, people trying to escape in the Cold War, and it happened for real. Why do I mention that? Well, our series this term is The Shape and Substance of Our Hope. And so far, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15. We've seen how Jesus' resurrection actually happened. And therefore, hope is for real. And it might be that you've been listening to that and to the series, and you think to yourself, okay, Hope is for real, but is it for me? Is it for me? The people in East Berlin knew that hope was for real just a few miles away, but it wasn't for them. They were on the wrong side of the wall. And it's possible to be in that situation spiritually as well. You hear about Christian hope. You can understand that it's for real. Perhaps you even look at others and you think, yes, they've got it. But somehow, it's not something you're able to access for yourself. Hope seems to be for real, but not for me. Now, how do you think God feels about that, if that's you and where you are? Do you think he's standing back and saying, well, I hope they can figure it out, those poor, hopeless people. I've done everything, haven't I? Shouldn't they be able to get it? No. God is not like that. In fact, God wants us to have assurance. What that means is he wants each one of us to know that hope is for real and it's for you. He wants you to be secure in that hope. And he wants to work by his Holy Spirit so that what Jesus has done can come home to you. He knows that we're so easily overwhelmed, so easily shaken by life, so easily disappointed. He knows we need help for the fact of what Jesus has done to bear fruit in our experience. And he wants to give us that help. And that's why we're in Romans chapter 8 for the next few weeks. God has given us this chapter of the Bible because he longs to meet us and give us that assurance to work through these words by the same Holy Spirit who inspired them so that we would have hope. And God wants each one of us to know that the Christian life is not us staring wistfully at the wall wishing we were on the other side. It's not even us mounting a daring rescue attempt to get over. He wants us to see that in Jesus... We are already on the other side of the wall. In Jesus, we are safely with him. So whatever our circumstances right now, 
however much our world still needs to be made new, God wants us to have assurance that our hope is secure in Jesus. And so this wonderful chapter begins with this momentous truth. It's my first headline. Now we're free from condemnation. Now we're free from condemnation. You see that in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. All through Romans, Paul has been very clear, painfully clear, about humanity's biggest problem. We were made by God, for God, but have turned against him refused to give thanks to him, suppressed the truth of who he is and what he's done, chosen to worship other things, build our lives on other things. But God hasn't just given us what we deserve for that, and he hasn't just given us over to the hostility we've chosen. He sent Jesus to save us. And if we're in Jesus, if we're trusting him, then the dramatic rescue has already happened. The Holy Spirit has brought us out of captivity into freedom, out of death into life. We've been set free. You see, we used to live by the law of sin and death. That was the old power that locked us into hostility against God and against one another. But now we've been set free. We're under a new law, a new power, that of the Holy Spirit who is the Lord and giver of life. He's the one who's liberated us so that now we're free from condemnation. How exactly is that possible? It's because God condemned our sin in his son. That's my second point, because God condemned our sin in his son. Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. Paul calls the law powerless, weakened by the flesh. And I think all of us have experienced that. All those things we know we should do, and yet somehow we can't bring ourselves to do them. All those things we know we definitely shouldn't do, And yet when push comes to shove, we're unable to stop ourselves. That's human life, isn't it? From trivial things like dieting, it's definitely my experience, maybe you could tell, to actually the much more serious stuff as well. The things we should never have said, but we can't unsay. The things we really should have done and others were counting on us to do, and yet in the moment, we didn't. That's why Paul says that the law is powerless. It's weakened by the flesh. But he also wants us to know that the law isn't itself the problem. The law itself isn't our enemy. The law is a bit like a plane. When conditions are right and you've got the right pilot in the cockpit, it'll take you where you want to go. But here's our problem. Conditions aren't right. Our world is fallen and so are we. And so the plane is no longer being piloted responsibly. It's been hijacked by a terrorist who wants to plunge us into destruction. That's what Paul means when he says the law is powerless, weakened by the flesh. And I just need to say here that flesh does not mean your physical body. Perhaps you were here last week when Sarah was showing us that from 1 Corinthians 15. 
Our physical bodies are not an obstacle that God has to overcome when he saves us. And he has a wonderful plan for your body. He's going to raise it, just like he raised Jesus's. So flesh here does not mean your physical body. What it means is humanity in opposition to God, locked into hostility against God. And that's the problem. Not the law, but our flesh. That sinful heart-level hostility against God. And so the law is powerless to help us. Because even when we try to follow it, it ends up condemning us. It sets a standard we find ourselves unable to meet. That heart-level hostility against God means that we can't live his way. And that leaves us helpless. Helpless because we want God to fix our world, don't we? We want God to deal with everything that has gone wrong in it. But if he did that, what would it mean for us? What we ask for in fixing the world would leave us in the firing line. Think about it. We want God to step in and fix all the stuff that's broken and deal with the people who've done wrong. And we especially think that when we look over the ways we have been wronged, the ways we have been exploited, the ways we've been hurt. And we long for him to do that. But here's the thing. If we're honest, we know that each one of us has also done wrong, has played our part in exploiting others, has hurt others. And so what we're asking for in fixing the world leaves us in the firing line. And if there's going to be any hope for the world, then God has to deal with sin, all sin, even ours. But if he only used the law for for that, then we would be left condemned. Because the law knows how to condemn, but that's all it can do for us. And if that's all we had, we'd be left without hope and without God in the world. But here's the miracle that Paul's talking about. Here's the wonder that we've been singing about in our worship. Here's the truth that's drawn us together. God has done what the law could not do. He has found a way of condemning our sin in the flesh without condemning us. How? God the Son stepped into our place to be condemned for us. Now, Paul is really careful when he talks about this. You'll notice that in verse 3. He says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. He doesn't say in the likeness of flesh, because that would mean that Jesus wasn't fully human. But of course, he is fully human. He took a human nature to himself. He wasn't faking Christmas. He really did that. So Paul says, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Because what he's trying to say is that unlike us, Jesus was fully human, but not captive to sin. His humanity was not in opposition to God, because he is God, taking humanity to himself. That's why he was able to stand in for us, fully sharing our humanity, but without any sin to burden him. And so we read he was sent as a sin offering in verse 3. Literally, it says, sent for sin. But this is a good translation, because in the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul would have read, The vast majority of the time we read the word for sin, it refers to the sin offering, the sacrifice that brings forgiveness from God for what we've done wrong. That is what Jesus came to be and to fulfill. And his whole life was caught up in that. He came as one of us so that he could die instead of us. And it culminates in his death on the cross. 
That's the moment, verse 3, when God condemned sin in the flesh. Jesus took our sin on himself, carried it to the death it deserves, and then died it for us. Now, God wants to bring us assurance in this chapter, so why has he told us that? Why does this bring us assurance? Well, it's a little bit like when you're walking out of the supermarket, big bag full of shopping, and the alarm goes off as you leave, and the security guard comes over to you, but you're not worried. You're not even a little bit worried because you know that everything in your bag has been paid for and you have the receipt to prove it. Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me twice. And I can honestly say they were two of the most satisfying moments of my life. <laughs> as, as I got the receipt out and I, was, I said, I think you'll find it's all been paid for. I loved it. That's why I always print the receipt whenever I go, just in case it happens again, because that is a satisfying moment. But you see, the whole Christian life is lived in that satisfying moment. The sin that shames us, that we're afraid of, that we don't want anyone to see, God has dealt with it, and it's been paid for in Jesus. And so it doesn't have to burden you, and you don't have to live in fear of it, and you don't have to hide from God because of it. He has dealt with it in Jesus. It has been paid for, and you and I get to walk out free, and we have the receipt to prove it as well written in Jesus' blood when he said, finished on the cross. He condemned our sin in his son. And what's wonderful here is that God's justice goes from being the thing that threatened us to being the thing that makes our assurance airtight. See, before we came to Jesus, God's justice was the thing that would point out all the wrong that we had done, which, of course, was the right thing to do. That's very threatening. It leaves us in the firing line. But now we know that God condemned our sin in his son. God's justice is our best friend. Why? Because God would never punish sin twice. His justice means he'd never do that. And so the very thing that might have caused us to worry now becomes the thing that locks us into ultimate security. Now we're free from condemnation because God condemned our sin in his son. And as Paul goes on, this is not some historical event that stays in the past. What Jesus has done is a present reality transforming us in his Holy Spirit. So here's my third point. God leads us through life in his spirit. Now we're free from condemnation because God condemned our sin in his son and leads us through life in his spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who gets to work in us so that what is objectively true about us in Jesus becomes subjectively true to us in our hearts. That is something the Holy Spirit does for us. And as he does, hope becomes for real and for me. And that happens as he leads us through life and we experience his transforming power. So what's going on in verse 4? Verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now, in one sense, the righteous requirement of the law is met in us because we're in Jesus and he died for our sins. And that means that the righteous requirement of the law, that sin gets dealt with and judged and condemned, is met because God condemned our sin in his son. But Paul is actually saying even more than that here. Wonderfully, the righteous requirement of the law, here, all of the good that it points us towards, that too becomes increasingly met in us as we are led by the Holy Spirit and changed by him and made more like Jesus. 
So we don't live according to the flesh, Paul says, but according to the spirit. And what that means is that the plane is no longer controlled by the hijacker. The Holy Spirit is in the cockpit, and we have a new power guiding us through life, helping us obey. Now, let me say at this point, this is not an instant transformation. It doesn't happen overnight, and many Christians know they'll spend the rest of their earthly lives in a struggle against the flesh, the old pre-Jesus attitudes. But here's the wonderful thing. If you've trusted Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is at work in you, and the struggle has begun. The transformation has begun. You no longer have to live out the old script or follow the old programming. You no longer have to sin because the Holy Spirit dwells in you and he's doing a new thing, empowering a new obedience. And what's wonderful is he won't leave us alone in the struggle. He won't abandon us in that, but he's with us and works in us. What I'm about to say now is not me trying to make a political point, disclaimer one. It's also not me saying that this is an easy situation I would know how to fix, disclaimer two. Two disclaimers, here we go. Life in Jesus is not like what the West did in Afghanistan. When we went in there, we said we had a positive agenda for Afghanistan that we said we believed and we said was worth fighting for. And there was fighting. So many died, so much damage. But... There came a point where we no longer wanted the war. Started feeling too costly. So what did we do? We pulled out. The West abandoned Afghanistan to its enemies. Reports say that Afghan forces were left overnight without any of the air support they had relied on in their fights. Can you imagine how discouraging, how dispiriting it would be to be one of them, overnight deserted by the people who were supposed to be providing the power? God will never do that to you. God will never do that to us. He never abandons us to our enemies, and he never abandons work he's begun. And you know how we know? Because of his presence with us by the Holy Spirit. Because this is not a God who sits back and gives us advice from afar, but leaves us to fight the struggle on our own. He's the God who takes up residence in us, makes his home in us, and he's in it for as long as it takes to bring us into the fullness of everything Jesus has done for us. Now, we're free from condemnation because God condemned our sin in his son and leads us through life in his spirit. So, practically, how do we live this out? Here's what God's calling us to do. Live in God's now. Live in God's now. Human history is split in two around Jesus, BC and AD. But you know, it's possible even in 2021 to live as if it were still BC. And I'm not talking about toga parties or really bad personal hygiene. I mean, from a Christian point of view, it's possible to kind of be living as if you've wound the clock back. Here's how. Look at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is God's now, freedom from condemnation, joy in his life-giving love, unshakable security in what he's done for us. Have you said yes to that? And are you enjoying that? Are you living that? Or are you living as if that stuff somehow hasn't happened yet? or temporarily became untrue because of something that just happened in your life or something that you did. Really easy to slip back into that BC way of thinking. 
Now, it might be that some of us are here looking into the Christian faith for ourselves, trying to figure out whether it's for us. It's so good that you're here. And if that's you, then you know that you're not already in verse 1. But the amazing news is that God wants you to be, that tonight he invites you to come to him. And if that's you, don't let anything hold you back. There is nothing in your way when it comes to coming to Jesus, because God has dealt with it all. This is not something you have to earn for yourself. Jesus did that. You don't have to sweat for this or bleed for this. Jesus did that, and it's all been paid for in him. I wonder, do you want that for yourself? Not to have to go through life shouldering all the crushing burdens, fighting all these unwinnable fights, and doing it all on your own without hope. Because God wants to set you free through his son in his spirit. Is that something you want? Well, tonight you can have it. God's arms are open wide to all of us, as wide as Jesus' arms on the cross. And he calls us to know him. If that's you, you don't have to leave tonight without receiving everything God has to give in Jesus. Come talk to me about that. We can pray about that. Come receive prayer ministry for that afterwards, or pray with someone you came with. But I suspect that many of us in the room have already done everything I just said. Many of us here are Christians. Well, did you know it's still possible for people trusting in Jesus to live as if we were still BC? It's possible to forget verse 1 and to live the Christian life as if it isn't in your Bible, as if it isn't in your life. To forget that. Now, we often forget that because life is really hard. So hard that actually we even wonder if God might be punishing us. That's something that Romans 8 will deal with later as we go. But since I brought it up, let me say something about that now. The cross tells us that God condemned our sin in his son, and God's justice tells us that he never punished his sin twice. So that means that if you're trusting Jesus, all of the sorrow and struggle and suffering you're going through is not punishment. It is not punishment. The Bible says, you can see this in Hebrews 12, it's discipline. It's discipline. And you can trust that in and through it, God is working for your good. That doesn't make it easy, doesn't mean it isn't hard, doesn't even mean you understand how. But if you're trusting in Jesus, that's what's going on. It's not punishment. But I think for many of us, the reason why we forget verse 1 isn't even about circumstances, it's about falling short. We stumble in sin again. We realize we failed again. And then that inner voice strikes up in our head, saying what it always does. Look what you've gone and done. You always fail. What kind of Christian are you? And so on. Probably don't need me to say any more. You've probably heard that voice before. And for some of us, that condemning voice is hardwired in by past experience. But actually, it's easy for any of us to slip into condemning ourselves and forgetting what's going on in this passage. It's as easy as looking around and comparing yourself and then feeling worthless. Getting out your phone and looking at it and comparing yourself and feeling worthless. And when we do, it's like we've slipped back into a BC way of living. But you know, as easy as that is, that is not how you have to live. And that is not how God wants you to live. That's why he's spoken this word from the Bible to you tonight. It's why he wants you here. So that you would know that that condemning voice is not God's voice. That is not how he treats us. No, he took the condemnation our sins deserve on himself in his son. 
Everything about Jesus tells us that everything about God is for us, and for us in the most costly way, for us when it really counts and really costs him. Now, later in this chapter, we're going to see that God's voice is actually his spirit, testifying with our spirit that we are children of God and heirs of him. And even when he convicts us of sin, which he does because he loves us, that's not to to rub it in or make us feel bad. It's to show us that we've died to that and to call us to come to life in Jesus by obeying him. Now, we're free from condemnation. So live in God's now. Here's a quick little side point. If we're free from condemnation, then one of the things that means is that we Christians cannot get in the business of condemning others. If God has set us free from condemnation, then we cannot go around condemning others. The only moral high ground for Christians is Calvary. We know what we deserve, and we know what we've been spared. So we can't condemn anyone, and we long for everyone to come and discover what we found in Jesus. Why not pray that this week, your freedom from condemnation would not just be something you personally experience, but perhaps something others around you taste and and smell as you become the least condemning person they know, the most grace-filled person they know. Now we're free from condemnation. So live in God's now. Let me offer two ways for us to respond to this. The first way would be to call out to the Holy Spirit for him to bring these truths to life for us, or or better yet, bring us to life to these truths, to do the work in our hearts we need so that this is not just something we understand with our minds, but something we know with all our beings. Not just hope that's for real, but hope that's for me. Now, let me say something about that. When we ask for the Holy Spirit to do that work in us, to bring these things home to us, what we're not saying is that somehow you are missing something as a Christian, and somehow you are kind of insufficient, and you don't have everything God has to give in Jesus. Not at all. When you came to trust Jesus, if that's something you've done, then you got everything God has to give in Jesus. And you cannot have more than Jesus. When we ask for the Holy Spirit's work, we are never asking for more than Jesus. There is no more than Jesus but we are asking for more of Jesus. We are asking for the amazing, vast inheritance that is ours in Jesus to come home to us a little bit so that we can get a sense of that more and more. So afterwards, as you come to receive prayer at prayer ministry or as you pray uh, as Helen leads us in a time of response, cry out for the Holy Spirit to bring these truths home to you. Here's a good way to know whether you should be crying out for his help. Is your first response to reading these words, yeah, I know that, yeah, yeah, fine, what good is that to me? I'll be honest, sometimes I'm like that with the Bible, and that's a great sign that I need to ask the Holy Spirit to set this on fire for me, to help me see that this is everything. That's one way we might respond. Another way to respond is to rejoice, to celebrate, to praise God for what he's done for us. To celebrate that in Jesus and through his Holy Spirit, he has set us free. So you see, if you're in Jesus, you are not on the wrong side of the wall. The plane is no longer controlled by the hijacker, and you will never be abandoned to your enemies. 
because there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Celebrate that. Praise that. As we stand to sing, as in a little while we will, sing that truth out through these songs and ask the Lord as you pray and as you praise that these truths will go deeper into your heart. Because you see, this chapter that starts in verse 1 with no condemnation from God will end in verse 39 with no separation from God. Will end with us as more than conquerors in Jesus, with the whole of creation sharing with us in the freedom that is ours in Him. That's what He's done for us. That's what He's given for us. Let's rejoice in that. Let's live in the light of that. Let's view everything to come this week and all the battles that we might be facing from this perspective, that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen.